Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome back to the AUKUS Amplified podcast. We are incredibly excited to bring you the last of our podcast series taped at the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons fall meeting in Dallas, Texas. We bring you the most exciting and interesting research presented at the fall meeting. And I am Stefan Obini. I'm the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee. I'm from the University of California, San Francisco. And joining me today in the booth is Dr. Chad Kruger. Hi, Dr. Beanie. Thanks for having me. So I am Chad Kruger. I'm a fellow down at the Rothman Institute, and I'm sitting across the table with Dr. Delavalle and Dr. Hannon. So I'd like you to uh, both introduce yourselves. My name is Charlie Hannon. I'm a fifth-year resident at Rush, and thank you guys both for having us. Uh, I'm Craig Delavalle. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at Rush in Chicago. Dr. Hannon, I'm going to start with you. So what's the title of your paper, and then what is the story behind it? What made you think about this? So we published a study titled Education Increases Disposal of Unused Opioids After Tolgen Arthroplasty, a Cluster Randomized Control Trial. So at Rush, we've had a focus specifically looking at opioids over the past couple years. And I was a second-year resident rotating with Dr. Tad Gerlinger. And we had multiple patients when I was on that rotation who came back and said, you know what, doctor, I didn't really use all my opioid pills. I think I got prescribed too many, and I don't even know what to do with all the ones I have left over. So this became a huge area of focus for us, and we said, what's the root of the problem? So we went back initially to look at the amount of pills we were prescribing our patients. This actually was the James A. Rand Award paper last year, where historically at our institution, we were prescribing patients between 90 to 120 tablets of opioid pills. In some cases, 180. 180, correct. So we ended up doing a prospective randomized control trial looking at the number of unused pills patients had after surgery. And we randomized patients to get either 90 pills or 30 pills. And when we randomized patients to get 90 pills, they had on median 73 unused pills after surgery, compared to patients who had only 30 pills uh, prescribed to them, who then had median 15 leftover pills. So this was a huge revelation for us at Rush, and we completely changed our practice in terms of the amount of pills we prescribed our patients. But we actually found still, there were some patients who had 15 leftover pills. So Craig, that's an interesting question. How did you socialize that across the department to get everybody to adopt this new practice? So yeah, I mean, I would tell you that we've definitely pride ourselves on doing research and doing randomized trials. And I would say most of the time, most of the people are like, they're with it, you know? They're like eager to help us. But when we went to the study that Charlie was talking about, decreasing the number of pills that we were gonna prescribe to patients, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of resistance predominantly from the physician extenders because they were concerned that if we write people for 30 pills, they were going to get a lot, a lot of phone calls. So I think there was a a lot of resistance to that. And secondarily, you know, then the physician extenders complained to the attending surgeons, then the attending surgeons called me and said, what is the study we're doing? And I'm getting a lot of pushback on this. And I think at the end of the day, we always learn a lot from doing these studies. And we constantly learn how important it is to challenge the beliefs that we have and that what we are doing today is the right thing for our patients. And I think that's really, really important for anybody who does research is to really think about what you're doing and why you're doing and challenging are you right or are you not right? Because oftentimes, you know, I say when we do these randomized studies, about a third of the time they kind of come out the way that I expected. A third of the time they come out completely opposite to what I expected. And a third of the time we wind up learning something that I never even was on my radar that was possible from the results of the data. So I really think you have to listen to the data. And again, as Charlie said, once we did this study and we showed people the data, one, they realized we were giving 
way too many opioids. And again, I think we do do a good job at Rush in terms of perioperative pain control. And I think one of the things anecdotally that we see is that when you do a really good job for the first six to 72 hours after surgery, the patients require less opioids at two weeks, three weeks, and four weeks. So we were giving way too many opioids. But again, as Charlie said, when we looked at this, we said, all these people have all these unused opioids. And interestingly, so I was listening to a different podcast on a completely unrelated topic, and they were talking about things that you can do to live longer. So, you know, of course, I actually started to listen to the podcast at that point. (laughs) And so I'm 50, and they talked about leading causes of death. So they were talking about the CDC and leading causes of death. Leading cause of death among men, I think it was 40 to 55, is opioid overdose. I could not believe it. I could not believe it. You know, it's overtaking motor vehicle accidents as the most common cause of death for men in my age group. So again, I think we looked at this and then we said, because again, some of these things just aren't even on your radar. You know, as orthopedic surgeons who do hip and knee replacement, we're thinking about so many different things and opioid disposal just was not on our radar. And that's when we said, okay, this is a logical thing for us to do is to really look at how can we improve? Because Charlie will share all the results. And I still think they're completely unacceptably low, but I think we can improve upon what we're doing. So that was really great. Let me ask you to go back to that question. How did you socialize it? How did you get everybody to finally stop overprescribing before you got to the disposal question? What I would say is we talked to them individually. And honestly, I used examples from the other research that we've done where we came up with results that were unexpected and say, you know, I think that we have to try this. And I also kind of told people, well, let's think about this. Do you agree that we're in an opioid crisis? Yes. What can we do to potentially decrease it? This is kind of part of your job. So if you get a couple extra phone calls and we decrease overall the amount of opioids that we're giving to our patients, I think that that's worthwhile. And I'm sorry if you're going to get a couple extra phone calls, but I think it's worthwhile. And and, and people were receptive to that. Because I'm, I'm assuming everyone was pretty surprised by those results that you found on that first study, by how many unused opioids there were or not so much? Shocked. Yeah. Shocked. I mean, I think people were really surprised how by giving a smaller prescription that that would work because right. I think people didn't believe that they could give so few. And again, didn't realize once you really tracked it, how many were being left over and unused? Yep. No one had any idea. And we have a poster here this year as well, using a patient engagement platform as a way to track these data sets that came up with a very similar uh, argument from your point last year. And there's also distribution. It's not like there's a specific endpoint, like 50 and that's it. Some use 10, some use 20, some use any, and some use a lot. I think that's the next step, actually, is finding uh, individualized prescriptions. You know, I think for all of us in our practices, we give everyone the same number of pills. I'm going to give everyone 90, but for someone who's young, active, was taking no narcotic prior to surgery, they may not need any. And so I think that's the future of where we're going, and we're just kind of going a logical step of saying, let's prescribe to you now. Don't give away too many of our secrets. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think that's a good point, because no matter what our cutoff is and what we try to standardize, there's going to be unused opioids or unused medications. And I think this study, right, I'd like you to talk about a little bit more how you went about, you know, developing the methods of the study to figure out how to best get patients to take care of those medications. Yeah, so as we mentioned, when we did our initial study, we had patients who had on median 15 leftover pills. So we said, even just having 15 leftover pills, 
that should be something that we should really address. And how can we educate patients to dispose of those pills? But unfortunately, in the literature, there wasn't a really good baseline rate of the number of patients that were disposing of their pills. So we decided, let's look at it prospectively. We did a prospective randomized controlled trial, and we cluster randomized. So what we did was, at our institution, everyone goes to a joint replacement teaching class. And we randomized patients by class. And the best part about this study was that they were all blinded. So we actually got IRB exemption for the patients to have no idea that they were involved in this study because it was a, no matter what, they were going to benefit from it. And there was no harm to them. So what we did was we randomized patients into three groups. One group got no education at all. So we let them be. And at six weeks, we then asked them, did you dispose of your opioid pills? And among that group of control patients who had no education, only 9% of patients disposed of their opioid pills. Our second group, we created a pamphlet, and essentially it was some education about FDA-approved methods of disposal. We gave them a pamphlet at the teaching class, and then we mailed it to them at three weeks and six weeks after surgery. So they received it three times. And in that group, 33% of patients at six weeks had disposed of their unused opioid pills. Our last group was a different group where they received the education pamphlet, but in addition, they received text messaging. So we have a text message service that many of our surgeons participate in that was developed by some of our residents where they receive reminders at three. The smart residents developed that? The smart ones. Correct. Not you. Not me, correct. Okay. Yes, much smarter than I am. Three, four, five weeks, they received a reminder before they came into their office at six weeks to say, hey, you should dispose of your opioid pills. In that group, 38% of people disposed of their opioid pills. Now, we were underpowered to detect a difference between the text message group with the pamphlet versus the pamphlet alone. But regardless, to Dr. Delvoy's point before, it's over four times increase in disposal when you give education, but it's still only a third of patients. So clearly, there is so much need for innovation in this field of how do we really get patients to dispose of their pills and what are the best ways to do it. And just to give the audience a better idea, so were there specific steps of how to dispose of their opioids or what was the type of information that they were given? Yeah, so we gave them information regarding the FDA-approved methods. So that's bringing them back to their fire department or local police station. Bring it to a take-back box at Walgreens or CVS. We actually even have one at Rush that we installed. You don't have any financial relationships with that, I, gonna... I have zero financial relationships, okay. unfortunately. Uh, so... <laughs> We have a take-back method at Rush, and we also included flushing down the toilet. So this was controversial initially, and we had to really go back and look. But the FDA does approve for you to dispose of your opioid pills, specifically oxycodone, in the toilet if you have no available means to go to a take-back box. So it should be your last resort. So now, what are its environmental concerns, right? Correct. With with disposing them in the... Yeah. Correct. But in the, today's opiate epidemic, they're weighing that environmental concern versus there are people who can get addicted by taking one pill. Well, as I keep in mind from your previous study, 33% of people throwing away 10 extra pills versus throwing away 130 extra pills is a huge difference in the amount of narcotic that's in circulation. Yeah, that's a great point. So interestingly, the most commonly used method was flushing down the toilet. And so in both groups, about half of patients, half of that 33%, they were using the toilet just because it's easy. So again, I think there's still ways that we can really work on. There are better ways to dispose of them just flushing down the toilet. But if you have no option, we definitely recommend doing that versus leaving your home for, God forbid, your child or your friends or family member get access to it. So for the 60% of patients, even in the best group that were showing up and hadn't disposed of their opioids, had they mostly used them? Or are you giving then at your next visit telling them, hey, doesn't look like you dispose of them. This is what I'm recommending. Are you having that conversation in we person? Don't, we don't. I don't think we knew. So we did know. So what we actually did was we only included patients in the study who had unused pills. We initially ended up randomizing, I think it was over 550 patients. And then we saw 60% of them had unused pills and then were also included in each of the groups. So we made sure they had unused pills to detect that difference between the groups. So again, you know, 40% of people completely use them, but of that 60%, only a third are actually disposing of them. 
Okay. So you weren't necessarily having another conversation with them afterwards. Is that something you're considering in the future? Or how is Rush using this information going forward? It's funny. We were just at lunch with my staff and we were talking about this exact issue. And, you know, there's so many things to focus on when you interact with a patient. You kind of almost need like a checklist, but we're going to include it in our educational packs. I am shocked that the text messaging didn't work. I thought for sure, I mean, if you get a text message that says, make sure you dispose of your opioids, you feel like people would probably remember to do it. My sense is, is that patients are holding on to them just in case they need them. And I think that that's a bigger educational issue. And, you know, one of the things that I think that we've talked about with the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons is being more of the go-to informational source for patients. And we did a position statement last year on using opioids for the non-operative treatment of hip and knee arthritis. But I think that one of the things that we could probably add, and it's a good idea, is some information about disposal on the AUKUS website. We just need to get that word out there more to, to the lay public, that diversion of these medications and or later use is, is really problematic. And again, it just needs to be a cultural change. Yeah, and also there's another piece of this. We've been focusing on the other podcasts in this series, which is there are alternative methodologies for managing pain beyond sure. narcotics. And if you don't give people anything other than a narcotic, they'll feel like if you take it away, they have nothing left. But we've been hearing about teaching how to do mindfulness to manage your pain. We've been talking about using apps that outreach you're talking about, those text messages are now apps that we can use. We talked about in the business course that you ran earlier uh, yesterday and the opportunity for these connectivity tools to make those reminders that are automated, do not put extra work on the staff that is already overburdened with the challenges of getting people scheduled. So absolutely great insights that you brought us. First of all, way too many pills last year Oh, and by the way, of those too many pills, they're mostly staying in people's shelves and in circulation, and we need to be cognizant of that for whatever reason they're yeah. holding on to them. Yeah. So the less we give them, the better. And yeah, it may require a couple extra calls, right? And then yes, there is an opportunity to take some of the digital technologies that are now available to us to increase the communication and stay in touch with our patients to remind them of these questions. Absolutely. So with that, I'd like to wrap it up and I'll start with you, Craig. Craig, you told us about how you've socialized this in your group and it sounds like it's been well received to minimize the number of drugs that you give out or how's that going? Yeah, you know, with orthopedic surgeons are creatures of habit and people in general are hesitant to change uh, what they feel like is working well. But I think that's one of the things that this meeting does really well, is it provides people with high quality evidence that they can take home and change. And I think for anyone who's listening to this, you know, that's the idea. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help surgeons take better care of their patients. And there is a lot of good information here. And the idea is to take it home and to use it. And, and there's oftentimes headwinds. But at the end of the day, I think we have a responsibility for our patients to do the best by them that we can. So I think whether that be physician extenders or forces in the hospital or economic forces, again, it's our responsibility for our patients to give them the highest quality care that we can and come to a meeting like this and learn some stuff and bring it back home. Awesome. Thank you for that. Charlie, you're going to be in the practice a couple of years. What, what are you taking home with that's going to be part of your approach? Yeah, so I think this study is one of the few studies that are really not controversial, right? This clearly works. And providing education to dispose your opioid pills, there's no risk to the patient and they only can benefit from it. So for me, I think every arthroplasty surgeon should be giving some education because you know what? If it saves one poor opioid overdose, you know what? We did something right. And I think for us, that's a really easy take-home message where it's not a lot of work for you. 
put in a pamphlet that shows you how to dispose of them, and you really may actually prevent a life, a life loss. Chad, you reviewed this paper for us and brought to the table. You, you're an expert now on this topic. Where else would you like to add to this? No, I thing? think Charlie hit it on the head, right? There, there's no downside to you know educating patients and trying to educate yourself more and your, and your partners more on the problems that can be created with opioids. And anything we continue to do in this avenue is certainly important. So I just want to congratulate Charlie and Dr. Delavalli one more time on this study. It was excellent. Thank you guys very much. Outstanding. So thank you both for joining us today. This is our fifth and last in our series of new podcasts that were taped at the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons fall meeting in Dallas, Texas in 2019. Please listen to the rest of the podcasts in this series and let us know how you like the content, the framing, and uh, leave us as many stars as you feel comfortable leaving so we can increase our... That means five. That means five, <laughs> folks, yes. So we can increase our reach. Thank you or very six. much. <laughs> can you give six? We give 11. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.